Please turn with me in your Bibles to this morning's text. It is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, and we will read together the first five verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, Satan would just love to have this message peter out and not be finished. And I pray that you would bind him and uh, put a bar across the doors of this sanctuary so that in every person's heart here there would be free access to your word. Our trust is in your mercy. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we begin a series of messages that will take us up into the summer from the epistle to the Galatians that the Apostle Paul wrote. And one of the reasons that I have chosen to preach from Galatians is that of all the books in the New Testament, this book seems to me to be alive. Paul here is at his most vigorous. The sheer emotional force of the book has captured me again and again. Something so great is at stake. You can't read the first ten verses of this letter without feelings that something stupendous is in the offing in this letter. You can't read Galatians and when you're done say, well, now that was a nice little piece of spiritual reflection any more than you can take a live coal and examine it with your bare hands. Galatians is a virile statement of the central truths of Christianity and I would just love to see us as a people get those truths into our head and that virility into our faith so that our faith has, has bone and marrow and strength and is not easily toppled over by any fads or winds that blow along our day. The Scottish minister P.T. Forsyth said, The secret of the Lord is with those who have been broken by his cross and healed by his spirit. And those two things are exalted high in this letter to the Galatians. The cross of Christ as the only way by which a man can get right with God and the spirit of Christ as the only way by which a man can obey God. Anything in Paul's mind that diminishes the all-sufficiency of Christ crucified is anathema, which we will see in a couple of weeks. And anything that puts my willing or running in the place of the Holy Spirit is witchery to the Apostle Paul, which we will see a few weeks after that. I think the reason that as we read this letter, we sense a kind of compassionate rage beneath this letter is because somebody in the churches of Galatia had in fact put themselves in the place of the Spirit 
and put the works of the law in the place of faith in Christ crucified. My hope is that just as last year with 2 Peter, this year with Galatians, you will study with me week in and week out. Just pick up the next paragraph and study it through during the week. I want you to marry Galatians that the two might become one flesh. And there's nothing I'd rather be over the next six months than a spiritual cupid to cause you to fall in love afresh with the magnificent Christ of this book. So, let's begin today with verses 1 through 5. First, I'll sum it up, then I'll go back and take it apart, and then at the end we'll put it back together again. Verse 1 lays claim, Paul lays claim here, to a unique authority, namely an authority of an apostle who isn't commissioned by men, but by Christ risen from the dead. Verse 2 says that not only is Paul sending this letter, but the uh, other believers or brothers in probably in Antioch sending it with him. In other words, verse 1 says Paul has a unique authority that sets him off from his brothers. And verse 2 says, nevertheless, the message he preaches binds him together with his brothers so that he's not a loner, he's not odd man out, he's not preaching an unorthodox thing that nobody else in the church believes. Verses 3 through 5 can be summed up like this. Grace can now come to you, and that's verse 3, and glory can now go to God, that's verse 5, and sandwiched in between verses 3 and 5 is the foundation or the basis for how grace can come to you and glory can go to God, namely Christ crucified. Or Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age. So, when we stand back now from these five verses, don't get the impression that this is sort of a quickie salutation that he tosses off Sort of like uh, from Paul to the Galatians, how are you? I'm fine. Haven't heard from you for a long time. And then the letter starts. That's not the way Paul writes. What we see, in fact, in these five verses are the two themes that will be taken up in the rest of the letter. Verses 1 and 2, the theme of authority, which he picks up in 1.6 to the end of 2.10. And the rest is the message that he speaks authoritatively. Namely, Christ crucified for our deliverance from the present evil age. So, now let's go back to verse 1 and look at it in more detail. Paul calls himself an apostle. And many of you know that apostle simply means uh, one who is sent by somebody else as a representative. That can be seen most easily in John 13, 16, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, A slave is not greater than his master, neither is an apostle greater than the one who sent him. So an apostle is a sent one. But in the New Testament, you have a general usage of this word apostle and a particular usage that has a more precise meaning. Let me spell each of those out and see what the context indicates this one to be here in verse 1. In the general sense... An apostle is a person who could be sent out by a church. 
For example, in Philippians uh, 2.25, Paul calls Epaphroditus, who brought from the Philippian church to him money. He said, he is your apostle to my need. Or in 2 Corinthians 8.23, when the churches of Macedonia choose representatives to go with Paul to take the money to Jerusalem as their representatives, Paul calls them the apostles of the churches. In other words, just somebody who is appointed and sent out as a kind of authorized representative for a local group of people. And in that sense, we could say call Tom Barno our apostle when, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks he goes to Uganda and builds a mission residence there. And we sort of send him and get behind him with our prayers. But look at verse 1 now of Galatians 1. Paul explicitly denies that that is the sense in which he is an apostle. See that? Paul, an apostle, not from men. He wants to clear it up from the outset. Not through men. Don't class me with people who come with letters of recommendations from churches. I was not made an apostle by any council or church, but as we go on and read the rest of the verse, I was made an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, the risen Lord Jesus, by the will of God, commissioned and sent Paul, not any church merely. So Paul calls himself, for example, in 2 Corinthians 1.1, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, that meant for Paul something very different than just to be a congregational representative like we want to send over to Calvary Church on Friday when we do our business and elect a new minister of outreach. Here's what it meant for Paul. Listen to these texts and see if you get the connection. 1 Corinthians 9.1 Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? See the connection? Or 1 Corinthians 15.8 and 9 Last of all, he, Jesus, appeared to me. Now notice when it says last of all, that means that's different from any kind of vision anybody has ever had since. That was an apostolic commissioning vision. Last of all, Jesus appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles. Unfit to be called an apostle, for I persecuted the church of God. Now from those two texts, we can assume, I think, that apostle has for Paul the more particular meaning. Not just the general sense of being sent out by a church, but rather the sense in which the risen Lord had appeared to him and had commissioned him and sent him as his delegate or his representative to teach the churches. This meant for Paul, therefore, that he was among that unrepeatable group of the twelve, added on, as it were, later. Ephesians 2.20 shows how unrepeatable that group was because Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. No, no apostles in that sense in the church today. The church is built on them. They are the once for all foundation. And Paul, therefore, had virtually the same apostleship that Peter did. You can see that in Galatians 2.8. 
If you just drop your eyes down the page where it says, he who worked through Peter for, and the RSV translates it mission, but it's literally apostleship. He who worked through Peter for the apostleship to the circumcision now worked also through me for the Gentiles. So he's claiming to be on the same level with his greatest of all of the twelve. And you know what Jesus said the authority of the twelve was. Matthew 10:40. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So Paul knew that he had a very unique place to play in redemptive history. God had given him an authority to build and teach the church, which he did. Listen to this word from 2 Corinthians 13.10 to see what authoritative claim he makes. I write this while I am away from you in order that <coughs> when I come, I may not have to be severe in the use of the authority which the Lord gave me for building up, not for tearing down. So, that was the authority of the unique and particular kind of apostleship that Paul claimed. He had seen the risen Christ. He had been commissioned, as the meaning of the word implies. And one more thing that we could get out of uh, 1 Corinthians 2.13 the Spirit of Christ was working in him so that he taught the things of the Spirit in words taught by the Spirit. We use the technical word, he was inspired by the Holy Ghost. Now, let's just stop for a moment and let the, the implications of this hit us. In a couple of weeks, I'll talk about Paul's argument for his authority, which he gives in verses uh, 11 following of this chapter, but today I'm just going to assume that you agree with that. Just assume that we're all a family of believers here and ask what difference it makes. What an assumption that is. You see what it means? It means that when you read Galatians, you read Christ. You hear the words of the living Christ. Galatians is the very word of the King of Kings, spoken by his authoritative emissary and ambassador, apostle. Oh, how many of us are tempted to cry out to God for some message, some revelation, some dream or vision, and spend almost no serious effort to plumb the depths of this word of Jesus once for all delivered to the saints. We ought to be ashamed when we ask for cheap words, when he's delivered by his apostle, dear words. How many times have Christians come into my office to seek counsel for some problems, and when I ask them, um, have you searched the scriptures on this issue? They sort of get nervous and, and sort of defensive. And I've concluded that there really are not many people who exercised a disciplined, day-by-day submission of the mind and the attitudes of the heart to the apostolic word of Scripture. There just aren't many people that do that, it seems to me. 
We treat the Bible mainly as a kind of uh, spiritual hypo. We come to it and nuzzle up to it for ten minutes or so and wait for the injection. But the practice of submitting our ideas and attitudes and habits day by day to the scrutiny and the absolute authority of the apostle's word, that's rare as far as I can tell. For some of you, at least more specific here, for some of you, there are attitudes and patterns of behavior at home between husband, wife, parents, children, roommate, neighbors, which are contradicted by the apostolic word. You, you are going on in patterns that are contradicted by the word of the apostles. For a few of you, that's because Christ is not your magnificent master and therefore the word of his apostles is of no great weight in your life. But for more of you, that's not the case. Rather, you want Jesus to be the master of your life. But over the years, there has developed a relationship between you and the Bible, which causes scripture to be just a blur of hazy notions. There's no real life-changing encounter with the lucid, vivid conceptions of biblical teaching. No encounter with our own thoughts that we've inherited. Instead, we've sort of absorbed from, I'm not sure where, habits of reading which simply spread a fog across the text. And all the crisp, angular skyline of biblical revelation is blunted and therefore does not shape or alter the way we think. And I don't think that's all your fault. I'll turn the tables on myself and my, my peers. I think there are way too many preachers and teachers who have never been shown anything better and so they continue to cultivate in their classes and congregations an approach to Scripture which says it's authoritative, but which sees in it such vague, imprecise generalizations about doctrine and life that it can't refine theology or change behavior. It's just a fog. They use what I call a kind of massage technique of biblical interpretation. They let their eyes kind of massage the text for a little while and the text for a little while and then and then out of that massage comes a feeling or, or a thought. And then they turn away from the text and they and they speculate about that thought for a little while. Quite apart from the grammatical and logical and contextual issues in the text. And then they call that biblical interpretation or exposition. You'd be surprised how many pastors, when they get together <clears throat> to discuss issues that are really important, never open their Bible and state their case and argue for it from the grammar and the meaning of the words and the flow of the thread of the thought running through the paragraph. They just pick here and there and 
If you try to open your Bible with a group of those guys, they kind of look at you. What are you trying to do? You know, literalistic or biblicistic or... Why? Why is that the case? Well, one reason is that the massage technique doesn't yield anything sharp, clear, lucid, powerful that can confront and refine theology and change behavior. All it yields is dull, vague, imprecise, insecure, uncertain generalizations about all kinds of matters under the sun. It is no coincidence that Reformation and renewal came in the 16th century when John Calvin and Martin Luther started reading the text grammatically, when they attended to the words and what they meant in their context, when they attended to what phrases mean in the author, when they attended to how propositions relate to one another in sequence, and when they tried to follow a, a thread of reasoning through a paragraph, that broke the Bible open and changed the world instead of leaving it in a fog. Now, I have such a long way to go in where I would like to be as a preacher that all I can do now is talk in terms of my goal. And my goal for Bethlehem is that not only the preacher, but Sunday school teachers, especially Sunday school teachers, from the littlest kids right on up through the oldest adults, will be the kind of teachers who not only say we believe the Bible is authoritative, but will submit their minds and their hearts to reading with precision and care and disciplined attention to the meanings of words in context and the intended relationships among sequences of statements and the coherent thread running through a paragraph instead of just plucking here and there and vaguely making comments from inherited tradition. That is not optional. It is not an esoteric game for scholars. It is simple humility and submission to the apostolic word in Scripture. It's the only way I know to own up to Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from any man, but from Jesus Christ. How can we read his word any other way than with rigor and discipline and submission to its authority? If we believe that he spoke for the living Christ and that that Christ is our Lord, we can't be satisfied with a text massage or with imprecise, hazy notions about the meaning of text. We are going to study. We will analyze. We will sketch little pictures of the text. We will write, research, ponder, meditate, muse, we will make connections, we will analyze and synthesize until the word of the apostle stands out with lucidity and precision and power and is unescapable in its effect. And then we will bow and we will exchange all of our thinking with his thinking. And we will be new. 
That is the most thrilling thing about the Bible, is that it can free you to think according to Christ. Verse 2. Two additions in verse 2. One, not only does Paul write this letter, all the brothers, he says, write it with him. In other words, he, he wants to create unity in the church. He doesn't want to stand off and say, because I have unique authority, therefore I can teach unique things. There is an orthodoxy in the early church, and Paul does not want to go against it. He wants to demonstrate that what he teaches is in harmony with, with what the brothers believe. And the second thing he does here is tell us that this comes from Galatia, or is aimed at the Galatian churches. So let's get that in our minds. Picture uh, the Mediterranean world. Remember a map now? Up here in this corner, for you, be right there. There's Turkey. Right down the middle of Turkey is Galatia, extending from uh, Pontus on the Black Sea to Pamphylia on the Mediterranean. And the churches of Galatia could be either uh, Pisidian Antioch and Derby and Lystra and Iconium, those churches that Paul founded in the south, or it could be some unknown churches in the north that he started at a later ministry. And I'm not going to try to decide between those two destinations until it seems to make a difference in our interpretation. What you should note here, though, I think, is that the letter is not addressed to one church, but many churches. The churches of Galatia. In other words, the problem that he is dealing with is pretty widespread in the area. Now let's look at verses 3 through 5. <clears throat> And then we'll relate 3 through 5 back to verse 1 and uh, draw them together. I can symbolize, I think, the meaning of verses 3 through 5 best by trying to be a little statue before you. So look at me here, and, uh, and then you can look back at your text. Maybe you'll remember those three verses if you see this. Verse 3, I'm going to symbolize like this. I'm going to lift my hand higher than my head and open it as if I'm offering something. And what I'm offering is verse 3. Grace to you and peace. And the point of lifting it above my head and the arm attaching to my body where it's being supported is that I represent verse 4. Namely, a grace to you and peace through God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 4 who gave himself, and I'm going to bow my head to signify crucifixion and the death of Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. In other words, what we have in, in Galatians, right here in these phrases, is, is the whole book summed up as it were. Grace is offered and peace on the foundation of Christ crucified. Now, Verse 5 sweeps like this. If you finish verse 4 and realize how it ends, um, Christ died for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, not against God, but according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And, and my hand on the left is higher than my hand on the right. That's verse 5. So there are three levels in this text. The level that is at the bottom is Christ crucified to deliver us from the present evil age, the death of our Lord. It supports, first of all, an offer of grace that goes out to these sinful Galatians and no doubt to us sinful Bethlehemites. 
And out of all that flows doxology, unto whom be glory forever and ever. So if anything you remember from today's sermon, just picture me like this, okay? And see if you can remember what that means. Grace to you and glory to God on the foundation alone of Christ crucified. I almost named the sermon Grace to You and Glory to God, but uh, I didn't. But you can maybe remember it better with that. Let's ask one last question. What does it mean here to be delivered from the present evil age in verse 4? Let me use some texts from outside Galatians to help us. You remember what Jesus prayed in John 17, 15? Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one or the evil in the world. The world in which we live or the age in which we live is so sinful or so evil because sin has such a strong grip on us and on our institutions and because Satan has such a long leash that God has been pleased for some reason to allow him in this age. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this age, meaning Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. So we live in an awful age of slavery to sin and to Satan. But the gospel, the good news of the New Testament is that with the coming of Christ, a liberation has begun, kind of, of a transferal from one kingdom to another. Here's the way it's put in Colossians 1.13. God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a, a citizenship transfer that is going on as Christ wins allegiance in the world. And the reason that we are no longer enslaved to the fear and guilt and anger and pessimism and selfishness and greed and pride of the present age is, according to Hebrews 6, 5, we have tasted the powers of the age to come. Another age, that great and glorious age of freedom and deliverance, has come in Jesus Christ. We've just tasted it. And he goes on to say, Jesus does in Luke eleven twenty, the kingdom of God has come upon you whenever there is victory over Satan. Or Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the new has come. Nope, got that wrong. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. It is a new age, new power, new ways to deliver us from the present evil age. And there are two particular ways in which I see that delivering taking place, deliverance taking place. One is a change of heart so that we don't love the same things. And the other is a change of mind so that we won't think the way the world thinks. Let me show you where I get that. This, this is one of the most tragic statements in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, Demas has deserted me in love with the present age. That is tragic. How many of us could he say that about? Christ. 
So the first thing deliverance means is we don't love it anymore. We love the new age. We love the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. All this other junk will be added in appropriate measure. And the other thing is not just a change of heart and what we love, but a change of the way our minds work. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Deliverance, in verse 4 of Galatians 1, means not to think the way the world thinks. It means the power and the freedom to be appalled at the mindset behind the lead editorial in the Tribune yesterday. Roe versus Wade a decade later. Freedom. Freedom for Christ and from Christ. He says in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus died to deliver you from the curse of the law. Glorious forgiveness. And he died to deliver you from the conceptions of the world. Thinking the way the world thinks. And that is a glorious freedom. Independence of thought. So, summing up. The message today is one of those great biblical paradoxes. And I don't know if you've caught it. Let me make it explicit for you. Back to verse 1. Verse 1 stressed, I am Paul. I have an authority that is from no man. You must submit to my word and obey my teachings because I speak for the living Christ. Submit to my word. Be subject to my authority. Verse 4 says, I speak of Christ crucified who delivers you from bondage to the world. From this age that holds you in its shackles. You are free. Be free. Don't be subject to any man. Verse 1, be subject. Verse 4, be free. Is that a contradiction? Not in the least. Because you know well that the freest people on earth are those who submit most humbly, most thoroughly to the authority of Christ in Scripture. So my appeal to you today is this. Remember, Christ died for your sins so that a holy God who cannot abide sin can come down to you and in all grace and love give you enablement to liberate you from thinking and feeling and acting the way this age thinks and feels and acts. And not only that, he rose again and he appeared to Paul on the Damascus road and he authorized him to write the letter to the Galatians and Galatians is therefore the alternative to what the world thinks. You see, verse 4 creates a vacuum. Get it out of your head what the world thinks. And verse 1 fills the vacuum. Think the way the apostles thought. Let there be a revolution in your mind and in your heart. He died to free us from a mindset that leads to destruction. And he died to fill us with a mindset that leads to eternal life. So trust Him. Study Him and it will be grace to you and glory to God. Let's pray.
Thank you for answering my prayer, Lord, to help me through. And now, Lord, there are much larger concerns at stake besides whether a voice holds out. It's whether a heart holds out. Lord, there are people in this room, I know them, who need to bow before your authority. Who need to say, thank you, Christ, for dying for all my rottenness. I accept your grace. I submit to the authority manifest in the word. I will cultivate from here on out obedience. Help me, help me, and glory to you. God, would you do that in hearts, even now as we celebrate your grace in song. Through Christ I ask it. Amen.